Luke chapter 8, and we will begin in verse 40 here in just a few moments with a message that I've titled, One in the Crowd, because ultimately that's what I believe this passage draws our attention to, begs for us just to look and to see how this one in the crowd is so different than the others. But do you ever just feel like you are insignificant, this one insignificant person in this crowded world? I mean, there are over seven and a half billion people in this world. That means that the population of Madison, North Carolina, which is somewhere around 2,130 people, is roughly 0.0000285% of the total world population, all right? The population of, of North Carolina, if we were to look at our state, is a much larger population. That's 1027 million people, but even that is only 0.14% of this world's population. In fact, if you were to take the entire population of the United States, the the entire population of our country, that would only account for roughly 4.3% of the world's population. It's hard for us to fathom just how small We are in the grand scheme of how great this world is. And I won't even begin to get into how small our planet is in the span of our galaxy or of the universe. Now, we at our home, we have a little dog. He's he's a schnauzer. And we've got three children at home as well. And sometimes I wonder what the world looks like to each one of them. Some of you are parents know what I'm talking about, right? For most of the dog's life, for example, he's lived in one place there in the midst of our home. And so when I load him up in the car to take him to town because I'm running an errand or some, of some sort, he perks up on the driver's side over on the window or sometimes he'll lean up on the steering wheel and he shudders with amazement at each new car that appears on the horizon, as though that car just came into existence at that moment. And now Keith and Nicole Tuggle stopped by our house last night, and, and that dog went crazy. It was like he was trying to tell us, look guys, there is a person generator outside of that door, and it just generated two new people who came through the door. Do you guys see this? Or sometimes we'll take the kids to a a big concert and I'll just watch their jaws as they're gathered at at a big event down at the Coliseum, for example. As they look at the crowd size and think, wow, didn't know there were this many people around here. And, and that, ex- that experience is not unique to our kids. When Amy and I visited New York just a few weeks back, we had to catch a train from Manhattan over to New Jersey. And so we were riding the New Jersey Transit. And as we approached the gate, just to ride the train, this huge crowd of people had to funnel through these two doors in order to get onto the train. And there was no room to move, my friends. I mean, people packed out. When we finally got squeezed through those doors 
and made our way to the train. There were no seats left. And so we went up onto the second level of a train and found our way to a little spot in the aisle where we could stand and sweat while we waited for the train to take us to where we were supposed to be going. And our place in the world in that moment got just a little bit smaller that day as we came to realize once again just how small a part of this world we play. We enjoy living out in the country where the crowd is small and we at least catch some sense of significance in the midst of the tiny little Pine Hall town that we live in. But I think that we're all prone to feel at some point or another like we're just another face in the crowd. And surely that stirs up some Godward thoughts for us as well. We may ask questions like, does God really care about what's going on in my life with all of these seven and a half billion people here on this earth? Or you might ask, does my insignificance on the world stage in the grand scheme of things, does that translate into my insignificance in God's eyes? And can I really make any sort of impact in a world that is so heavily populated with people? Or am I just one in the crowd, unnoticed, uncared for, unlikely to make any sort of difference? You ever find yourself asking, That sort of question. Well, in today's passage, we encounter a lady who teaches us about how God deals with one in the crowd. Let me set the stage by reminding you that we're in the midst of Luke chapter 8. And in these latter verses of Luke chapter 8, Luke lays out for us four consecutive miracles that show us a different facet of who Jesus is and what he has power and authority over. So to begin with, after Jesus kind of lays out this sermon um, that that explains the sower and the seed, this parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat. They're in Capernaum, which is kind of the home base of Jesus's ministry, a place where he's performed tons of miracles. And they set sail across the Sea of Galilee. And as they're going across the Sea of Galilee, this great storm comes upon them to the point where these disciples of his, some of which were professional fishermen who were out on this lake every day, begin to fear for their lives. It was a great storm, and they were at very great peril of death. But they wake Jesus up, and he speaks to the wind, and he speaks to the waves, and he tells them, hush be still and in that moment he shows his power over the natural he shows his power over nature then as he and his disciples make their way on from the pristine calm of that storm in the wake of his power on display they arrive at a country called Gerasa the land of the Gerasenes. As Jesus and his disciples get off the boat, they encounter there a man who is possessed by a whole legion of demons. And as Jesus encounters this man, he drives these demons out of him. And the demons go into this flock of pigs, this herd of 
pigs, which is nearby, and they rush off, as you would expect a demon to do. He leads these pigs to destruction, and the demons possessing the pigs drive them off the cliff, and they are drowned, such that the people of Gerasa, the Gerasenes, the Gerasenes are desiring that Jesus and his, and his disciples would leave. They are fearful. They have seen at this point another miracle which displays not Jesus' power over the natural as with the wind and the waves and the sea. Now they see his power over the supernatural and the demons and those things which we cannot see, these forces and powers and principalities which are all about us doing either the bid of the heavenly one or the one who seeks to be the deceiver, his greatest enemy. And then so as they leave Gerasa, as the people ask for them to leave, they get back into the boat and they come back to what is, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' home-based ministry in the area of Galilee. Most of what he did was based out of this town known as Capernaum. And so that's where we pick up today. Jesus and his disciples have now arrived back in the land of Capernaum. And as they arrive there, they find that there is a great crowd that has gathered. A great crowd that is now waiting for them. And Luke's going to give us, here in this kind of interweaved fashion, two more miracles. Showing now Jesus' power over disease and his power over death. And so join me now, if you will, in Luke chapter 8, and we will begin in verse 40. So Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please find your way there and stand with me if you are able as we honor the reading of God's holy word. Luke 8, starting in verse 40, and Jesus returned, he's coming back from Gerasa, the people welcomed him. For they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus. And he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old. And she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped and Jesus said who is the one who touched me and while they were all denying it Peter said master the people are crowding and pressing in on you But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. If you will be seated. 
This passage is interesting because of what I mentioned to you earlier, this interweaving of these different accounts that happens as we see not just Jairus coming and begging for Jesus to come and bring healing as a synagogue leader to his daughter who is at the point of death, only 12 years old at this point. But Jesus, as he's on his way to, to deal with Jairus' request, in response to Jairus' begging, as Jesus is on the way, he encounters this woman. And, and the account of this woman is placed here very intentionally. I, I say that because this gospel account is actually recorded as well in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5 in all three instances of this healing of Jairus' daughter we find in the midst of that weaved in this woman with an issue of bleeding. In all three cases, this woman's healing is given as an interruption, if you will, of Jesus' journey to heal this deathly sick daughter. And it's interesting here. There's some interesting parallels that we find as we compare these two accounts and these are things you might not notice at first glance if you didn't take a little time to slow down and, and, and look more closely at the text. For example, did you notice that the nearly dead daughter of Jairus was 12 years old, according to verse 42? Well, how long had this woman, who now interrupts Jesus on his way to heal that 12-year-old daughter, been suffering with her physical malady? Did you notice? It's 12 years. There's a parallel there. Likewise, in both instances, there's this physical element that nobody else can address. And in both instances, Jesus mentions the importance of faith. These are both tales of faith. And in both instances, there's this reference to the females who are involved in the healing as daughters. The word daughter is used in both of those accounts with this familial language to describe the relationship that these ladies share in the midst of this account. Now we'll take note of a few interesting lessons that we learn from the kind of interweaving of these accounts as we dig a little deeper into this passage. And we'll also take a look at some insightful things that this woman does but first, I think it's helpful to notice primarily what Jesus commends this woman for. Why, why would this account be included here in the text of the Bible? Why would it be included for us? Well, I think when Jesus commends some, someone for something that they have done, we should take clear note of that thing because Jesus is drawing our attention to that person for a particular reason. And Jesus is drawing our attention to this woman because of something that she has greatly displayed. At the conclusion of the biblical record of all that she does, Jesus tells this woman who is healed of her bleeding in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, this woman is just one in the great crowd of people who are surrounding Jesus at this point in what he is doing in his ministry here on earth. But there's something remarkable about this woman that Jesus draws our attention to, and it is her faith. Faith, that confident trust 
that we have in Christ. The Bible refers to faith as the assurance of things hoped for, as the conviction of things not seen. And it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that word that is translated believe in our English language, that verb is none other than the verb form of the noun that we translate as faith in the original Greek language. They're the same word, faith and believe. It's just a matter of whether one is a noun or one is a verb. So believing, exercising faith, that is how we are saved. And nothing could be more important for every one of us who are gathered here on this day than that we would understand how to place our faith in Christ. And so as we study the example of this woman that Jesus commends for her faith, I want to share with you now four lessons of faith. From one in the crowd. Four lessons of faith from one in the crowd. The first lesson is this. Trust in the timing of Jesus. Trust in the timing of Jesus. You see, this woman had quite a malady. It's no wonder Matthew 9 records that she had been suffering. She had been suffering for 12 years. As she's been dealing with this issue of her body. And what exactly is it that's wrong with her, you might ask? Well, for 12 years, this woman had an issue of bleeding. Or as Luke, the physician, describes it, she had a hemorrhage. Luke, describing that as a hemorrhage, ultimately shows us that this was most likely a uterine hemorrhage. It's most likely an issue of bleeding that she could not stop. And it left her physically weak. It left her greatly uncomfortable. It left her in moments of suffering in a physical way. But for a woman in her day, the implications of what she was dealing with would have been much greater than just the physical aspect of what her body was going through. Because there also would have been religious and social and emotional aspects of this problem that this woman was dealing with. Why is that the case? Well, she was a Jew, and the Jews had as their law the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible as we know them, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Leviticus chapter 15, we find that the law of Moses prescribes that a woman with an issue of perpetual bleeding like this was deemed to be perpetually, ceremonially, unclean that means that she was unclean in the sense of being able to participate in religious life in her day in fact anyone who touched this woman would have been unclean for seven days even her own family had to keep their distance unless they wanted to be defiled whatever she sat on whatever she laid down on became unclean So that whoever touched those objects also became unclean. If her husband had relations with her, he became unclean for a week. For many women, 
for many women, even in our day, relationships with family and friends are some of the most important facets of a thriving life. Add to that the fact that in this Jewish culture in which this woman lived, so much of the cultural life revolved around gathering together for feasts and for celebrations and for worship at the temple and at their local synagogues. And this woman, as an unclean woman, was cut off from all of that. She was an outcast. As Luke so often draws our attention to the outcasts of society, here we have yet another example of that in this woman, in the midst of her struggle, in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her uncleanness and her long-running illness that cut her off from her family, her friends, and her culture. And so we can see why she would have devoted herself to finding a cure. This woman was desperate for a cure. Mark's gospel records in Mark chapter 5 that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and that she had spent all she had and she was not helped at all but rather had grown worse can you imagine being in those shoes this illness that had cut her off from all of cultural life had likewise left her impoverished with, with nothing else to her name. And her efforts to find the cure and going from doctor to doctor to doctor only left her worse. She found herself in a worse state than when she had started after she had spent everything that she owned. Can you imagine the despair of this woman? But do you know what's remarkable about this woman to me? She never gave up hope for a cure. She never gave up hope. She never gave up the search. All of this woman's failed physicians just led her to long for one physician who would come and the one physician who could make her clean. She never gave up hope. If it meant facing ridicule, if it meant facing suffocation by the crowd, if it meant sliding and pressing and shifting through a throng of people, she was ready for the challenge. And in spite of all the broken roads that she had been down, something within her said, surely there is someone who can make this right. And she kept looking for that one physician who could make a difference. And my friends, that physician has come. She encounters him here in this trial. But her failures did not leave her in lasting bitterness Though others had failed her, still she trusted in this physician of hope. And friends, I don't know where you are in your life. I've known many individuals who've been through this sort of struggle of going from doctor to doctor to doctor and just spending away all the money that maybe you had collected in your own personal fortune in search of a cure. I don't know where you are in the midst of other trials in your life. I don't know how many people have let you down the way the doctors in this woman's life, maybe they were earnestly trying. There were probably a few quacks in the midst of that who were trying to get a little profit of their own. 
But I don't know how many have let you down, but I just want to tell you, my friends, there is one who will never let you down. There is one who extends to you a healing that lasts. There is one who can fulfill your greatest yearning. Though you may have tried in a thousand other places to find fulfillment, to find healing, to find a cleansing of what is wrong with you, there is one, my friends, who extends that to you by faith. And I call upon you to see the example of this woman as each of us should follow her example in trusting in the one who can deal with what everyone else has let us down about. We can only imagine how sick this woman is at this point. We can only imagine just how painful it must have been for her to get out and to walk after treatment after treatment had left her in worse shape. Surely, physically, she was in worse shape, but perhaps there were side effects of anxiety and depression to be added to the pain. Surely she'd lost some friends as a part of this struggle who were just tired of hearing about what she was going through and said, man, I don't need this in my life. And, and what worse time to having heard of the one who can bring healing to come into the midst of the throng that is gathered around him. Because there's something very important that Jesus is doing in this moment. Jesus is on the way to bring healing. Not just to anyone, to a child. I'm talking about a 12-year-old. I mean, our heart grieves for anyone who's in the midst of suffering. But have you noticed how greatly a community rallies around when there is someone who is not yet an adult, who is facing a struggle on the verge of losing his or her life? I mean, Luke begins this account by saying that when Jesus and his disciples arrived, the people were there waiting on him. And who is in the midst of that people waiting on him? None other than this prominent leader of of Jewish religious community. He's a ruler of the synagogue and hits his daughter who is sick. We can't help but wonder if maybe that's the reason everybody's waiting on Jesus to get back. Maybe they know that Jairus' daughter... Jairus, the one we love. Jairus, the prominent member of our community. Jairus' daughter is close to death. A young girl is about to die. Jesus, get along. Jesus, bring healing. Jesus, get over there and make a difference. But can you imagine being this woman dealing with this issue for 12 years and thinking, is this the right time? Is Jesus really going to make space for me in the midst of all he's got going on everybody sees a sense of urgency here but still jesus takes time to respond to this woman's need and surely this woman must have questioned the timing of all of this how could god allow me to deal with 12 years of this struggle but she was about to find that God had a marvelous plan in the midst of her suffering. Mark records that after hearing about Jesus, this woman came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. That's faith, my friends. She simply heard the good news that a long-awaited healer had come, and so she went to him by faith. Even though every other bit of timing that she had encountered in the past had failed her she was still willing to trust in the healing of this one 
And if you're questioning the timing that he has in your life, my friends, I just want to encourage you. The faith trusts in what we cannot see. Faith trusts in what we cannot get our grip on. Faith trusts that God has things in control and that his plans are the best of plans. And so I encourage you, if you're in the midst of a struggle that you don't understand, keep trusting because the faithful one has come. And time and time and time again, he has proven his faithfulness and his love and his compassion for you. And his timing is always right. So trust in the timing of Jesus. But secondly, trust in the compassion of Jesus. Imagine if you scheduled an appointment with a doctor because you were worried about some physical ailment, something that's wrong with your body. But when you finally get to your time in front of the doctor, you realize that he really doesn't care what's wrong with you. What good would that be? If the doctor really doesn't care what's wrong with you, how is he going to be able to treat that malady that you have? A physician who doesn't have compassion for you is not the physician that you want helping you through your struggle. And this woman met a physician who cared. He came to bring healing for all. He came so that we could reach out to him by faith and be healed. We live in a culture that seems to neglect the poor and the suffering for the sake of the wealthy and the healthy. Far too often individuals who are loved by God are treated by their fellow man as though they are not valuable because they don't have wealth or they don't have status or they don't have good looks. But that's not our God. The contrast of this passage makes that clear because as Jesus is on the way to help this young 12-year-old just on the verge of marriage probably beautiful young girl who's still got all of her life ahead of her. This woman who comes, who is obviously at least middle-aged. She's been suffering with this issue of bleeding for at least 12 years. Jesus does not neglect the poor, worn-out, suffering, older woman. He responds to both of their needs. And my friends, our Savior has compassion for all. This is a fulfillment of what John the Baptist had preached back in Luke chapter 3 as he told the people to make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled. Those lower places shall be leveled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. That's what we read in Luke chapter 3. You see, my friends, Jesus leveled the playing field. Jesus came with compassion for all. So that he raised up those who are suffering even in the lowest eyes of society. He raised up the outcast and he brought low those who were the rulers, the synagogues, the most popular. So that they had to come bowing before him. We're all on the same playing field before him and his compassion extends to all. It's a joy to know that God's desire is not for children to die. Or for women to suffer and to bleed. How do we know that? Because God sent his son to die in our place. God sent his son to suffer and to bleed in our place. Christ has come 
bearing the multitude of our iniquities, bearing our struggles, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief so that he might show God's compassion for you. And his desire is not for you to stay in these things. His desire is to give you life and for you to live that life more abundantly in him. And so I urge you, secondly, trust in the compassion of Jesus. But thirdly, trust in the power of Jesus. Luke notes in verse 43 that this woman could not be healed by anyone. But my friends, I want to tell you, Jesus can do what nobody else can do. Jesus can heal what nobody else can heal. And on this day, this woman found healing. She did so as she touched the fringe of Jesus' cloak there in verse 44. That's an interesting transfer. Was this some sort of magical coat that Jesus wore? Could he have just left that coat laying around and somebody come around and accidentally get hit by the coat and, and have sudden healing? No. Jesus later says that he sensed that power had gone out of him. The power, my friends, comes from Jesus. The power is not in some magical coat that he is wearing. This woman came to him by faith, and she found his power in the midst of reaching out to him in such a manner. And this idea of touching is a prominent one in this passage. In fact, four times in this very short account of this one woman, we find this word, translated to touch used to describe her actions that jesus then sensed and this theme of healing by touching is pretty strong in luke's gospel in luke 5 for example the leprosy stricken man who said lord if you are willing you can make me clean finds that jesus indeed is willing and so jesus reaches out and touches this man and immediately his leprosy leaves him Luke chapter 6 reveals that this great throng of people came to Jesus to hear him teach and to be healed. And we read in verse 19 that all the people were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises up a widow's dead son from the dead as he touches the coffin. In Luke chapter 18, individuals bring their babies to Jesus so that he might touch them. In Luke 22, Jesus touches and heals the ear of a slave of the high priest, even the one who has come to arrest him, bringing healing. And then over in Mark chapter 6, we read that wherever Jesus entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it, were being cured. You see, my friends, Jesus has a great power to heal. With just a little touch, he can make the vilest sinner clean. And he can make the sickest sinner whole. But you might say, well, Jesus isn't physically here right now. Jesus isn't here for me to physically touch. He isn't here to physically touch me in this moment, Jesus has gone to his heavenly Father now. He has ascended, as the Bible attests to. He's coming again, but how can I have this touch of healing in my life? Well, my friends, James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, gives us some insight here. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? 
then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. My friends, the touch of the Savior is sensed through your very prayers. We touch our Savior through our prayers. Are you suffering? Then I hope you are praying. Are you struggling with some issue that is beyond your power? Then I hope that you're reaching out to the one who has all power by praying for his help. Because, my friends, there is power in prayer. I've experienced it in my own life. I've seen God's hand at work to heal real physical maladies that I could not explain and doctors could not explain in my body as the body of Christ came around to pray over my needs and my situation. And this woman trusted in the power of Jesus. So she fights through the crowd and she reaches out by faith and she is immediately healed. Now what about this issue of being unceremonially or or ceremonially unclean? I mean, if this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, isn't, isn't Jesus then defiled at that point? Isn't that what the law calls for? Isn't Jesus unclean now at this point? And no, my friends, you should know that Jesus is so holy that when we bring our uncleanness to him, he makes us clean. When this woman touches Jesus, her defilement doesn't transfer to him. His holiness and his righteousness and his cleansing transfers to her. And that's a picture of what Jesus does for anyone any of you who comes to him by faith. His righteousness is transferred to our unholiness. And we are forgiven. We are made right by God simply by trusting in him. We are made clean. And you say, oh, that sounds so simple. That sounds too easy. My friends, I tell you this. It's simple for us. But it wasn't simple for him. It, it, it's, it's an uncostly thing for us. But it came at a great cost from him. Because Jesus bore God's wrath in our stead. Jesus stood in our place. The just for the unjust. And yes, faith is a simple thing for us to entrust our lives in his finished work done for us without my own deeds but it is not something that has come without a great price one which he has footed the bill for all on his own and this woman's example calls for each and every one of us to likewise trust to trust to have faith in the power of Jesus to save Now, what happens next is most interesting to me because Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. 
And surely there were people who were literally touching him from every direction. Luke records in verse 42 that as he went on his way to Jairus' house, the crowd was pressing against him. That word translated pressing against in the New American Standard is a Greek word which literally means to choke or to suffocate. Jesus was being choked by the crowds. Surely they were all around him. They must have been bumping into him from every angle. But still he turns and asks this interesting question. Who is the one? He says, who is the one who touched me? Even as the crowds are suffocating him, he says, who's the one? Even as they're pressing him as an olive presses a grape. Jesus wants to know who the one is that touched him. Many people were all around him touching him. Why would he say, who's the one? That seems like a strange thing. And Peter even says as much. When Jesus asks who touched him, Peter says, you know, Peter gets this idea sometimes that he's got something that he can, you know, enlighten Jesus on, right? Hey, master, look, the crowds are all around you. They're pressing in on all sides. They're squeezing you from all directions. But Jesus still talks about this one who touches him. And what we learn next is that the one he's talking about is the one who has reached out for his power. The one who has reached out and grabbed the the fringe of his cloak by faith. Even as the crowds are suffocating Jesus. Even as they're pressing in on him from every direction. Apparently only one. This poor middle-aged woman reached out to him in a way that drew from his power. And only one of this crowd exercised faith that said, let me touch him and be saved. You see, this woman is unique in her faith. She is the one in the crowd who stands out because she's like nobody else in the crowd. She's reaching out to Jesus for healing. Jesus didn't say, who are the many people who are drawing from my healing by touching me in this moment? He says, who is the one? She's the one who's reaching out to Jesus to be saved. It's as if this woman is saying in this moment, even if no one else in the crowd is reaching out to him in faith, I will. And there's an example, my friends, for each one of us to follow here. We must be willing to say, even if no one else in the crowd is reaching out to to Jesus by faith, I will. Even if my family is not reaching out to Jesus by faith, I will. Even if nobody else in the church is hearing the invitation and responding by faith, I will. This woman shows us this contrast between pressing against Jesus and reaching out to him in faith. And it's a sad thing. It's a scary thing for me as a pastor to think about. As I read this passage, as I think about how many other people were there around Jesus in this moment. How many other people were touching him but not being healed by him. How many of them were touching him but not being made clean in the midst of that moment. And that's tough for me to think because it's sad for me to think. How many people on this day press up against Jesus without reaching out for his power. You see my friends, we could draw a crowd. And we could miss his power. We could, we could breed a lot of excitement. And we could keep ourselves busy with a lot of activity. We could bring together a great throng of people who are never transformed. And when this woman realizes that she has not escaped the notice of Jesus, she comes trembling. And she falls down before him. 
power of Jesus is on display. And the power of Jesus brings fear to this woman. And when she learns what Jesus can do, she responds in reverence. Just like Jairus back in verse 41, she falls at his feet. So many others respond in the same way. And I'm not going to recount each one of those in the book of Luke, but over and over again, we see individuals who come before Jesus. The appropriate response for them is to fall at his feet. And friends, I just want to say this. When I meet my Savior, I, I expect that I will meet him in reverence. I don't think that I will give him a high five or a hug or a handshake because I shall fall at his feet in worship and I shall cry out with thankfulness because he is powerful and he is the object of my worship. And for you too, I say, trust in the power of Jesus. That's the third lesson of faith from one in the crowd. Here's the final one. Trust in the plans of Jesus. Why would Jesus call this woman out? Why wouldn't he just let her be healed and let her hide away in the crowd? Well, because Jesus had a work for this woman to do. He had a confession for this woman to make. And Jesus calls this woman to make a public confession of what he has done for her. That's what she does there in verse 47, where we read that she declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. You know, Jesus calls for each one of us to do the same sort of thing. He calls for each one of us to confess him. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, will confess him also before the angels of God. And there's a natural way, my friends, for a Christian to confess what Christ has done in his or her life. It's what we call baptism. We step into a watery pool, a watery grave, if you will. And we show that just as Jesus was lowered into the grave in death and has risen to everlasting life, so am I dead to the old man and alive to the new. So do I have the promise that even though one day my cold, dead bones shall be laid in the grave, I have a hope that he too shall raise me to life everlasting. That's what we do through baptism. We confess what Jesus has done for us. And I hope that's a confession that if you have trusted in Christ, I hope that's a confession that you have made. I hope it's a, a public testimony that you have given to show what he has done. Just imagine if this woman had not confessed him. What would she have missed out on? Well, she would have missed out on the kinship of the redeemed, right? Surely there were, there were others around who had been saved by Jesus. But they needed to know who she was so they could rally together to do his work. She would have missed out on giving the glory to whom the glory is due. Had she not confessed that Jesus is the one who's done this work, surely others would have just thought, well, she was healed herself. And she also would have missed out on ministry. Because so many times when we've been through a struggle like what this woman has been through, and Jesus makes the difference, if, if we don't share with others, then we miss an opportunity to minister. We miss an opportunity 
Sometimes we're shy, sometimes we're ashamed, sometimes we're fearful to let everybody know about the junk in our past. But my friends, if Jesus has packed that junk away and shipped it off, then you should let somebody know because there's somebody else who's dealing with that same junk here and now. And we have a testimony to gain in our confession of Christ. Well, as this woman confesses Christ, she finds herself a new family. Because in verse 48, Jesus addresses her with this word, daughter. And perhaps it seems a little bit cruel. Maybe you've been reading through this and you've heard me saying over and over again, this woman. Well, did this woman have a name? Probably had a name, right? Her parents probably named her, but Matthew and Mark and Luke and none of them record what this woman's God-given name was. But I'd argue this. Jesus gave her a name that was greater than anything her parents could ever have given her. Because Jesus called her a daughter. Jesus showed that she was a part of his family. And and you know, as I think about this myself, I don't care if the legacy of the Parker name is not magnified by my children. I don't need the world to exalt the Parkers as the greatest family who ever lived. If my children are known as children of the Almighty God, then that, my friends, is enough for me. I don't care if the name Jeremy Parker never ever goes on a sign out by the road. I don't care if there's some monument to mark my grave when my days on earth are over. I don't need roads or buildings or plaques to magnify the name that my sweet parents have given to me. Just let it be known that I am a child of God. I am a member of heaven's family. The king of creation has singled me out of the crowd among the great throngs of humanity and he has welcomed me into his eternal family through faith in the one who has borne my wrath and conquered the grave. Almighty God has adopted me as his own son. That is the only name that eternally matters to me. Jesus is healing and is welcoming into this eternal family is not the end of this story for this woman. He's got work for her to do. And so he commands her in verse 48, go in peace. He's got something for her to go and do. And my friends, you and I have been commanded likewise to go. Through the Great Commission, we've been commanded to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all the nations. We have a command. Now that we have given this confession, if you are in Christ, then you have a calling to go, to a commissioning to go and to make His glory known among the nations. And yet so often I think we're prone to slink back into the crowd and not to let anybody know what has happened to us to the point where... We could be his hands and his feet making the same sort of difference that this woman now makes. And yet she goes in peace in verse 48. She's been taken out of her anxiety and out of her despair into now a life of peace. Now surely there would be bumps along the road. But now she had been saved by faith. What else could cause her despair? She had an eternity that she had gained through Christ. What makes the difference for her? It's faith. 
your faith has made you well. Jesus says in verse 48. This word made you well is, is none other than the word which is often in the scripture translated as to save. So the Christian Standard Bible translates this as your faith has saved you. Likewise in Luke seven fifty, this woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair is told by Jesus, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And my friends, I just want to tell you, it is better to be one in Christ's family than to just be one among the crowd. And so hear me on this. Don't get caught up in the crowd and miss the Christ. That's the lesson of this woman of faith that we find in this passage. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for showing to us that your time is always right. That your compassion is always available. That your power is always sufficient. And that your plans, O oh Lord, are always what we need. So Father, as we gather on this day today, I can't help but think that in a crowd like this one, there very likely could be, would be individuals who gather and who sing the songs and who go through the motions, who are excited about the hustle and bustle, who are energized by the growth of the crowd, but who have missed the greatest of all blessings, who have missed reaching out to the one who has all power and all authority and all compassion, who have missed reaching out in faith to be saved by Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one of us here today would examine our own hearts to say, have I entrusted my life to Him? Have I entrusted my eternity to Jesus? Am I reaching out and trusting in nothing else that I can do but only what Jesus has accomplished? And am I living according to His plans? And Father, I pray that in this moment we would find that this lady, this one who had been healed, this daughter would be our example as we each one consider the place that you have for us in your family. Lord, we praise you for Jesus who has come, who has borne every sorrow. We praise you for Jesus who has come, who has extended your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would let each and every one who is here know today that Jesus has paid it all. We simply come by faith, making him our Lord, confessing our sins, turning to follow Jesus as our master.